Women Bridging the Gap is a freewheeling conversation podcast co-hosted by myself, Lenya Wilson, a black woman, and Alexandra Titalia, a white woman. We have had such overwhelming love, Sarah, about this. I guess it's also because of the things that we're talking about. This is one of the reasons why I'm excited to talk to you, because this is a topic that we actually got asked to talk about. Okay. Yes. The whole idea of traveling while black. And I was like, I know the perfect person. Yeah. I want you to introduce yourself to our listeners because you have the most fascinating story. Oh, wow. Okay. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) My real name is Sarah Greaves Gabanon, but I am known on the interwebs as Jet Set Sarah with an H. So that's my website. That's my handle on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, the whole bit. Um, a travel writer and on-screen host who specializes mostly in the Caribbean and tropical travel. And then I also dabble in a little bit of style and fitness because together those three things are my passions. I've lived in the Caribbean. I lived in Jamaica for a little less than half my life. Um, and my focus is on the Caribbean. It's a, it's, it's a topic and a region that is so dear to my heart. I feel very possessive and proud about the Caribbean. And I call so proud that I call myself a Caribangelist. And what I mean by that is that I'm spreading the gospel of the Caribbean with the world. And the gospel of the Caribbean is that it's all the islands are not the same. There are about 33 different islands that people go to. And if you don't know anything about the Caribbean, you're tempted to think maybe they're all, they're just little palm tree fringed sand fringed islands and they're all roughly the same but they just have different names and that's so not true my mission in life is to show people that the caribbean is a diverse region it's so rich it's so much more than beaches and if you go to the caribbean we have different languages different cultures different music different food different topography some of the caribbean islands are not islands like dominican republic and haiti There's just so much to explore. And if you go to the Caribbean and all you do, there's nothing wrong with lying on the beach. But if all you do when you go to the Caribbean is lie on a lounge chair with a Mai Tai in your hand, you're doing yourself and the country you're in a disservice because there's so much more to explore. So that's my mission. Let's start a little bit from the beginning as we find our feet. You're our first guest on our podcast in expanding this conversation. But Let's just start for our listeners. What's your cultural background? Where were you born? So like many a Caribbean person, I'm quite a mix-up. I'm a citizen of three countries, actually. So I was born in England, but my mother is from Barbados and my father is from Jamaica. My father moved to Jamaica when he was 14 in the 50s when England wanted people from the then colonies to come and do all the work that the English people didn't want to do, drive buses, blah, 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 blah. So my father came from a very humble family in the countryside of Jamaica in St. Anne. And there were eight children. And my grandfather came over first and then one by one as he could afford it. My grandmother came over two years later to Jamaica with a couple of children. And then the children stayed with their grandmother, blah, 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 till they all came over. It was a different situation for my mother, who was from Barbados. And she didn't move to England until she was in her early 20s because she was going to study nursing. But they met at a party. And the rest is history. (laughs) I was born there. But then when I was three years old, my father got a contract in Jamaica to go and work for Pricewaterhouse, a three-year contract. And so I was there for three years. And we kept going back. He kept basically going backwards and forwards between England and Jamaica on three-year contracts. 
So I felt equally comfortable being in Jamaica as I was in England. And all of my father's side of the family have continued to live in England, whereas my mother's side of the family is in Barbados and in the States. I finished high school in Jamaica. I went to university in England. And then I moved to the States in 2003. And I've been here ever since. Wow, 17 years. In talking about race, how was it going from Jamaica to England? Completely seamless for me. I have no battle stories to tell. I tell you, this is how it went. So I, we, you know, so my one to three, one to four, I lived in England, and we lived outside of London in an only t- in a town where we there was a one other black family in the town. That was it. So I grew up all not apart from my parents, not surrounded by black people. So it was the norm for me. And I never, it was just my norm. I do remember being teased. I remember once as a three-year-old or four-year-old, I guess, at school, um, a little girl coming up to me. And I used to work, my mother had put my hair in one. It was natural. I have naturally kinky hair. My hair was in one. And this little girl came up to me and she started to pull my hair at the front around my face like a halo and of course because I have kinky hair it would stand straight up and I do remember her saying to me you're like a little sunflower your hair's like a sunflower and she may to be honest she may or may not have meant it in a mean way I presume if she had her hands in my hair her motives were not pure but I don't necessarily remember feeling I think I knew I was different but I didn't think anything of it I think is a is it a Chima? I forget the, the um, African author Chima. Her last name begins with A. I forget, but I think she says something about she didn't know that she was black until she moved from whichever African country she went to somewhere else. Because it's all relative. It's all relative. As a child in England, I didn't even really notice that I was first, and didn't notice I was a different color from other people. And when I did, it was inconsequential to me. And then, of course, going to Jamaica, I'm surrounded by people who look just like me. Right. And actually in Jamaica, I would say to my mother, and I remember this, we would get there and she would serve maybe some Jamaican food, like some plantain or something, whatever. And I would say to her in my little English accent, mommy, did we have this in England? And if she said no, I didn't want it. You know, because to me, England was home. I was, I didn't want any plantain. I didn't want any avocado. I didn't want any ackee and saltfish. I just wanted a ham sandwich or whatever. But what I will say about, and what I've realized, like I said, almost half my life was living in Jamaica. I will say that there is so much to be gained. And I feel very lucky to have spent my teenage years and a lot of my early 20s in Jamaica, because there's a lot to be said for just seeing people talking about representation matters. And that's so true. Mm -hmm. Because, for example, when I see Kamala Harris, she looks so familiar to me. She looks like any Jamaican woman you would see in New Kingston, which is like the business district, anyone, any bank manager, anyone. She looks like, oh, she, like when she first came onto the scene, I remember thinking, oh, she looks familiar. Like she just, it, it's the power of seeing people who look like you mm-hmm. doing all the things cannot be underestimated. And, and I never understood that until I moved to the United States, because it's a very different experience if you are Black and grew up outside of the United States, or if you grew up here. It's a completely different experience. And it's funny that you say that, because the author Mm. that you mentioned, I think she wrote Americana, and I think... Yes. So she actually talks about 
that concept of she didn't understand what it was like to be black until she moved to the United States because it was really feeling the black American experience that exactly. made her feel especially other. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And up until then, so in, so in England, I knew I was different, but I, it, I felt special. I felt special, but here to be different is not to be special is somehow to be less than. And that's the difference. If I get on a plane and I sit down in first class or I want, depending on the configuration of the plane, I might, we have this thing, like some of the old planes, you would turn left to first class and right to coach. If I turn left to coach or sit left to first class or sit down in first class, I'm aware that other people in first class are noticing that I'm sitting down and either waiting for the flight attendant to say, uh, lady, 28A for you, or wondering who is she? She must be someone special. But I see when I, I notice that people notice me as I go through the world, but my personality is such that I welcome that. Like, you notice me? No problem. I'm not interested in blending in. I get and, that. And, 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 I, <laughs> yeah, that, I, that's not, my whole thing. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm not. There are so many people who I'm not interested in blending in. And if you, if I'm aware that you notice me, I my natural presumption is that you're noticing me for something good. I don't immediately think it's a bad thing. Ninety-nine percent. Oh, I, I of the time. agree. I think there are people, and honestly, I think I'm the same way. Even though I'm, I don't look any different than most people. But the idea is that. But when you go to Africa, though, Alex, you're the because so oh. Alex spends a lot of time okay. in Africa. Yes, yeah. where in Africa do you go, I Alex? Malawi, and I I teach creative writing at the Jacaranda School for Orphans, so I work with the kids there. And yeah, like I am. And I'm how a, does that make you feel when you're? Because I presume I don't know much about your background, but I presume that's a rare time for you when you people who look like you are not in the majority. How does that make you feel? The fact is I did in grammar school, like I grew up in in grammar school up till fourth grade, I was probably the only white kid in my school. So like I did grow up with an understanding or a sense of being other in that sense. But no, it's nothing like when you're traveling, even in China, I feel the same way. But in Africa, no, I was actually thinking that there are times where I'm just tired of, I don't feel different. I like, I enjoy it. They say uh, a Zoom, like you walk into a store and people say Uzungu and it's white person. And and I'm always like, yes, I am a white person and I'm here. Nice to meet you. And it's, it's fine. You know I mean? The fact is that people are curious. People want to talk to you. The kids write poetry and they'll say, oh, I love Jacaranda where I get to communicate with white people. And I'm like, yes, that's true. (laughs) The trouble that's a little bit still a little bit different though, quite frankly, is that Malawi still bears the scars of British colonialism. So Mm -hmm. it is a little bit different because I'm usually working with poor kids. I don't want to be seen as the white savior. And so Mm -hmm. I'm really cognizant that it's still different. There still feels to be like a weird power dynamic of being a white American working with black African kids. And it's a dichotomy I'm uncomfortable with. And I've talked to Lenya about this. I was like, I'm going and I'm helping and so be it. And I'm just really aware of the privilege that I I bring. And I'm really aware of how much we take for granted just as Americans. And then 
when I'm out and about in Malawi, just in the city and just, then it's different. Then it's, then I know people are curious. People want to talk to you. People have stories, but I have to say it's what gave me a sense, Sarah, of noticing that my students all sit by affinity group. And I've told this to Lenya before, and this is law school, but all the black students will sit together. All the Armenian students sit together. All the the Jewish kids from the Valley tend to sit together. And I used to really be disturbed by that. And yet I did understand how that starts to play out because I would be at a cultural center in Malawi. And if there were other white people there, I wasn't thinking, oh, other people of my color, but I was thinking, oh, that might be another foreigner. That might be another visitor. And Mm -hmm. I'm spending six weeks abroad. Let me go see what that person's story is. And is that goes, goes down to, is that somewhat racist? I'm not sure it's racist, but it is that sense of affinity that you find when you travel. I tend to, any American I find when I travel, since I tend to immerse myself when I travel, I'm always looking for other travelers because I'm looking to hear their stories. And I don't know, that's what my experience has been. But I, it's not the, there's no way of being a white American that I have a sense of otherism in a way that any other, any person of color has. Because no. the assumptions about you will be, as a white person, are very different about the assumptions that people will make about me as a black person. Absolutely. So I don't have traveling in China. I like the sort of starkness of learning about a culture and I like the perspective. I did get tired of people assuming I was rich just because of my color and my ethnicity that I found exhausting, but I could handle the curiosity a little bit, but it does get exhausting. I can have that same exhaustion from traveling in South America after six weeks of being on a chicken bus and you just get, you get tired of traveling and get tired, you get exhausted. And, and it is what gives me the perspective of understanding when we talked about microaggressions in an earlier episode, just understanding that to be a black person in a white Western European world can be exhausting. And after a long amount of travel, it's, you can feel the same way. What was it for you coming here? What did you, what are differences that you experienced? Because people tend to think, oh no, it's the same for you in England as it would be here, but it isn't. I think if if you're talking about, and I have not lived in England since for many years now, so I haven't lived there since early nineties. So we're talking a long time ago, but, but what I would say is that in general, in England, in my experience, prejudice or racism was much more subtle than it is here where it's overt. And I've been lucky. And I was saying this to Lenny in our emails. I've been really lucky and privileged really not to have, I don't have a whole history of racist, horrible things that have happened to me. I think that when I look back at my time in England, which is mostly as a young child going to school, I think it was more about the assumptions that people made about my teachers, for example, would make about my potential because I was black. You know, maybe they would think that, you know, wouldn't necessarily think that they should direct me towards the university track because maybe I just would, would, would want to learn a trade or do something else. So I'm 53. So we're talking early 70s. I do recall like being at my grandparents' house this was in the 70s. And if there were black people on television, literally, 
you would hear my parents or my grandparents on the phone with their friends going, black people on TV tonight. There was a show. Seriously, because black people, when I was growing up, black people weren't in adverts on television. And there was one show, a horribly, it's not aged well. It was called Love Thy Neighbor. And I think it was based on All in the Family. And it was with a racist white family living next door to an immigrant black family. And it was a comedy in prime time. And we all watched it because this was the only black people on television. And he would call him a nignog. He would call, the, the white character would call the black male character a nignog. And there's lots of canned laughter. And it sounds, I'm sure it does not age. And it sounds horrific now. But I could tell you, we were all just so excited there were black people on television. It's the same with All in the yes, Family. Exactly. The I think it is a... Yes, I think it's a spin-off of that show, but it was called Love Thy Neighbor. And it's it's a different thing. It's here now, I don't know, I've never I have to wonder sometimes if I've been, if, if I'm in a fancy shop, the typical thing where people are just a little bit too attentive. Can I help you? Can I help you? They're all up under your armpit. Okay, give me some space. Um also I'm married to a man who is Asian. And I can tell you, never, ever in 15 years of marriage have we gone into a shop or somewhere public like that. And has anyone ever assumed, even if we're like, we could be holding hands, we're never together. Mm-hmm. People never think we're together. And they never look at me first and address me. They always speak to him first. Always. That is me with my white husband. There you go. That is the truth. Like it, they, first of all, they never think we're together, but, but generally it's, they look at him, they look at him first. And sometimes I'll speak and they'll still look at him. Like they'll address, I'm talking to the salesperson, but the salesperson will look at him. It's very, it's quite bizarre. But that's subtle racism as well. Yes, exactly. And subtle misogyny. Because I got to say that happens to me too, where I am Mm. the more forward between me and my partner, Eric and but he's the quiet one and I am the loud one and I am the assertive one. So I, and they'll always look to him. I'm like, excuse me, excuse me. Tell us about Jamaica and I want to hear more about the Caribbean, but tell us more about Jamaica because when we think about traveling while black, like lots of people, lots of white people go to Jamaica all the time. And I have to admit, I went to Jamaica when I was six years old. And it is still one of the best memories. That's the thing about Jamaica. It's a tiny island. It's 4,000 square miles, 2 million people. And when you think about the... Jamaica punches way above its weight class in terms of how much effect it's had on the world, right? This teeny tiny place, anywhere, practically anywhere you go in the world, and you say you're from Jamaica or you have a Jamaica t-shirt on, people know what you're talking about, or at least they think they know what you're talking about. I went to Tokyo. We arrived in Tokyo. It was for my 50th birthday. And we're in customs. And obviously, um, the customs official, the person who's searching the bag is um, speaking Japanese. So we were doing the international sign language thing. And my girlfriend who was joining us had come straight from Jamaica and she had a red, green and gold scarf or something. And when the guy saw it, he was like, oh, Jamaica, Bob Marley. Yeah, it was like, all the English words he knew were had something to do with Jamaica. I count myself very lucky to have grown up there because to grow up in Jamaica is to have this innate sense. And this is no matter your social station, whether you're the guy on the street selling a coconut or you're an executive or a government minister. To be Jamaican is to have an innate sense of confidence. 
It's like a confidence visa that can't be revoked. And you walk through life feeling, because in Jamaica, you feel like, Jamaicans feel like there's Jamaica and then there's other, the small islands, the other <laughs> islands, right? The small islands, we call them. It doesn't even, we don't even need to know that you're from St. Vincent or Barbados or St. Kitts. You're from a small island, not a big island, because wow. Jamaica is the largest English-speaking island in the Caribbean. So Jamaicans are so proud. We, we feel, in, we are so entitled in the best way. And sometimes we are, as my friend says, we are wrong and strong. Even when we're wrong, we're convinced we're right. Or, you know, we, we're not, if there's a Jamaican, wherever you go in the world, if there is a Jamaican there, you will know it. It's not going to mm-hmm. be someone shy and tiring in the background. Where do you think that comes from culturally, that kind of confidence? Is it just because Jamaica has played such a significant part in world history and everybody knows? So most of the Black people who are in Jamaica now, who are Jamaicans, came from West Africa. Obviously, Africa has a multitude of different tribes and ethnicities and all that. And I think I can only suspect, I'm no genealogist or historian, I can only suspect that the the particular tribes that came from those West African tribes that came to Jamaica were obviously just people who were really like confident and strong and all of that because they're like people in St. Lucia are very gentle. They came from Africa too, but they're very gentle. They're not, you can't just say that all Caribbean have that people have the same personality because they don't. I don't know. I just, I can just, I can only imagine that it's the particular tribes that ended up in Jamaica because honestly there, I think it must be that because there are times when I could be walking in the mall here in Miami, and I can just look at someone and they look to me Jamaican. They, there's something about the way the features are arranged on their face. They just look Jamaican and not, they don't look St. Lucian or Kittitian or any of that. They just look Jamaican. So I don't know. Maybe it's a West African thing. But Jamaica's got so many references in pop culture. You've got James Bond has like how many movies? Yeah. How many movies yeah. are in Jamaica? Obviously, Bob Marley brought it. Yes. World and reggae. Um, music is now so p- much a part of the world music scene. Mm-hmm. So it's it is interesting that it's just this small island. Yeah. Small island had so such a great impact in pop culture right now. Or oh, I yeah. mean, for, for over years. Like, I think yeah. the, even the latest in the James Bond series has, yes, a, has a whole homage to Jamaica. Yes. Yes, because Ian Fleming, the British writer who came up with, who created James Bond, lived in Jamaica for a long time. And you can actually stay, you can go to GoldenEye, which is now a hotel, a resort, and you can actually stay in his villa and sit at the desk where he wrote the first James Bond story. Mm-hmm. It's quite interesting. But yes, GoldenEye is what it's called. So yeah, he wrote a lot of those James Bond novels actually in Jamaica. And so many of the movies have had parts of them filmed in Jamaica too, as Dr. No was, and then this, whatever, is it No Time to Die, which is a new one that's coming out in November. Do they also, still? Really? Yeah, it's still coming in, out in November. It, it is also has a part of it shot in Jamaica too. So the mm-hmm. ties are very strong. There was a part in this new series, I think in the second one that came out in the new series with, with Daniel uh, Craig. Oh my God. God. He's so hot. So hot. <gasps> Stop it. Not so hot Daniel. right now. Not so hot really? right this second. Yeah. Really? Unfortunate, but he's hot. <laughs> he's not looking good. Is it possible for Daniel Craig not to be? Did you see Knives Out? I did. Okay. But I thought that he, they just made him look not great for the character. No, I think he just, I think he's letting himself go. He's married, whatever. 
<laughs> Rachel Vice. Sorry, we're getting off track yeah. here, but getting let's just track, say for the record, it. Daniel Craig, break me off a piece of that. I know, same. <laughs> and um, the, like the first, I think the second movie, they had a whole section where he was in Jamaica for this mm-hmm. part. So I guess they're going to go back since the. Maybe. Yeah, but wow. It is interesting that, but also think about Cool Runnings. Yes, um, the bobsled movie. So yeah. many people that reference Cool Runnings. Yeah, well, and that, you see, that plays again to what I'm telling you about Jamaicans. Do you think that the fact that we had lack of snow didn't make us think that we could be good at bobsledding? No, we said, of course you can do it, man. Bobsled, push cart, go kart, same thing. Doesn't matter. We're Jamaican, it'll be fine. Seriously. <laughs> But it, it is amazing how such a tiny place has such a huge part in pop culture. But that's awesome. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask a question about just in the Caribbean in general, but you can talk about it, especially in Jamaica, because a lot of white travelers do travel to Jamaica and a lot of black travelers travel to Jamaica. And I have heard different stories. I've been to Jamaica five times over my life and I have never experienced this, but I've Mm. always had a fabulous time. I have never experienced racism. I've never experienced otherism. But then again, I probably traveled differently. I didn't, like I said, I didn't go to a resort either. And so a little bit different, but I have heard stories from black people that when they have gone to like restaurants and things, that if there's a a white family or white couples, that the restaurant will seat them first and treat them better than they treat the black travelers from wherever. Because like one of these people that I taught that I've talked to about this experience was from South Africa. So they're not American, but I have heard that there's this kind of like weird and it's black the black owners or concierges or whatever, they're the ones treating the white people better than the black people. And I was wondering, have you heard this? Where would this come from? I will preface this by saying I have not lived in Jamaica for 20 years and I am old. So (laughs) I am a perennial, not a millennial. So I will just say that I can recall, like when I, I did my degree in hotel management and I, it was an internship and I had to work in a resort for the third year of a four-year degree. So I remember being in, in, working in this resort and we were, I remember us having a training program and the trainer saying that you need to recognize that not all tourists are white because up until there is a, to understand this, Len, you, you must watch this movie, Smile Orange. Oh, I'm writing it down. Smile orange. Okay. And it's completely stereotypical, but you but but it is the it is a complete stereotype of what Jamaicans think white tourists are like. Okay. And oh. so I think that back then in the 70s there was this feeling of and when black people were not traveling that much as they are now, this feeling of, oh, the white people are tourists, the black people must be local. And the tourists have the money. So let's focus on the tourists. But I want to be clear, this is the 70s, not two, not 2020. So I think, but I think that's where it, it has come from because black people weren't traveling for leisure and pleasure. We were traveling all the time. We we're traveling people, but for leisure and pleasure and vacation, staff weren't used to seeing black people do that. But like I say, this is a long time ago. I will say that when I go back to Jamaica on a press trip, there have been times when I've never felt, I have never felt that I was not getting the 
having the same experience or getting the same level of service that a white guest was getting. I've never felt that. But what I can say I have felt is an over-familiarity to me because I happen to be Black. Mm. I have felt sometimes, and it's actually happened to me on cruise ships because, you know, there are a lot of Jamaicans who work, particularly bartenders. There are a lot of Jamaicans who work in the cruise industry. And I have found the opposite. I have found that there is, I'm a paying customer and I like to travel fancily. And I would like there to be some sort of professional distance between me and whoever is, I'm not saying I don't want to be polite or gracious or any of that. But there's a little bit of professional distance between the guest and and the person who is serving them, I think. And I have noticed I'll go to a hotel and the white people might be greeted with, good morning, ma'am, how are you? How can we help you? And maybe, particularly if it's a man, and that's just, this is also a Jamaican thing. If it's a man and he's talking to me, he might be just a little bit more certainly less politically correct and a little bit overly attentive or just overly familiar. It might be, particularly if I've made the mistake of saying, oh yes, I used to live in Jamaica. There might very well be like, so what's happened? Oh, I can't help you. How are you doing? (laughs) And that might be cute once, or that might be cute if there isn't a problem, but that I'm coming here for, but if there's a problem I need to get solved, I don't appreciate it. So what I'm trying to say is that Sometimes it goes the other way where mm-hmm. it's not, where you're just, just because you and I are the same color doesn't mean that we can't respect the professionalism that needs to happen right here in this situation. I have not felt discriminated against or that I've had lesser service than, than white people, but I have felt, I guess, the opposite to that, which is that you're just being a little bit too familiar here. Remember, I'm still a guest. Yes, I might be Jamaican and I might be very warm and whatever to you, but let's still remember that you are at your, this is a place of work and we need some professionalism here. With so many resorts and stuff going up in all of the Caribbean, and you're talking about go into the cultures. When you started, when you Mm -hmm. talked about yourself, you're like, please, we're great, but go in and observe the cultures and listen to the different languages. Do you find that a lot of the white Tourists are really just coming to be in an all-inclusive and not have any experience of the cultures? I think it used to be that way, but it's changed a lot, particularly with millennial travelers. I think, yes, before you could generalize and say, people just want to come somewhere, they don't want to get it, particularly in Jamaica and the Dominican Republic have the most all-inclusive resorts of any of the Caribbean islands. And obviously the appeal of an all-inclusive resort is you paid your money up front and you get there, you get in those resort gates, you pay for everything already so you don't have to worry. So you understand why people might not necessarily want to leave because that involves extra expense. But people are changing. And people who travel today want to understand that they're somewhere different and explore and appreciate the difference of the destination that they're going to. So for example, like, Before, it was really hard and really expensive if you were staying at an all-inclusive resort to book a tour to go, whatever, to Dunderbar Falls or wherever. Now, all the all-inclusive resorts have tour desks. They make it really easy. You can add it to your tab at the hotel. In fact, 
many of the all-inclusive resorts. For example, Sandals Resort owns Island Roots, which is the tour company. So it's all, the money seems like it's going in a different place, but it's all basically in the same pot. Because they And they are smart because they recognize that today's all-inclusive traveler, they're not a hotel guest. They're not going to go out necessarily every day, but they're going to want to go out at least one time. So they're thinking, okay, let's get a little bit of that money for ourselves. Because honestly, what's the point of traveling if you're not going to see the place where you're going to? What is the point? If you went to Jamaica and you never saw Dunsborough Falls and you never had some jerk chicken or you never went to a street dance or you can't really say you went to Jamaica, you went to a resort. Yes. But you need to get out there and experience the, the real flavor, the meat of the place, meet the people. You can't have everything be sanitized and just the way it is at home. It's a certain, to me, there's a certain level of sensible level of just a little bit of risk, a little bit of unfamiliarity that is, is a driving force of travel. Like you, you want to be experiencing new things, new people, new flavors, new scents, new sounds. And if you don't do that, what's the point of leaving home? Oh, I, you exactly. know, I completely agree. I also think it's really great to challenge our own values. So as Americans, you get really used to big bathtubs, big bathrooms, everything looks a certain way. And then to be in a place that where, and I'm not talking about Jamaica, just almost anywhere else in the world where you go in and a bathroom looks different and a bathtub looks different and everything is sanitary, but it's not, is not hospital pristine or something. It's the fruit. Okay. Here, let me just say, so here's, here's a difference between say Jamaica or the Caribbean and, and America. So when you go to the Caribbean and you go to the supermarket or the fruit stand, the fruit, is not the prettiest on the outside, cosmetically, but it tastes so good. Mm-hmm. And I remember coming here and going to Publix and all the fruit was beautifully arranged in the supermarket and all the oranges were flawlessly orange and perfectly symmetrical, but my God, they have no, literally no flavor. And that's the difference. We, in America, we want everything to be beautifully presented and look so good. And we have these standards for everything. These standards, to me, these unreasonable standards of perfection for everything, for people, for people's behavior, for how our fruit looks, for how women's bodies look. We want everything to look perfect. And in that, and in that search for perfection, we lose so much. We give up all the flavor. Exactly. Oh my God. You are preaching to the choir. (laughs) Like you try, I travel, like living in LA is hard. I don't know about living in Miami, but living in LA is hard. I leave LA every year just so I can have a sense of what's real because you come back mm. and you're like, I have no idea. You lose yeah. all perspective after a year here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it's very- my husband and I, we, we call it the red lobster effect because when my husband and I were dating, I had never been to Red Lobster, but I would see all these Red Lobster for the seafood lover. I would see all these, because also remember, before I moved to America, we we had satellite dish TV. So we had American programming all the time from the time I was like a teenager. So even if you hadn't experienced it, you knew what was out there. And I'd never been to a Red Lobster and we were dating and he said, we'll take you to Red Lobster. And I remember it was so, I remember the ad where they snapped the crab leg and it's so the, 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 the water droplets. So we go, we go to Red Lobster and we order the Admiral's Feast and I'm ready to snap my fresh caught Alaskan crab leg. And the crab leg comes and it's like, 
saw a trombone (laughs) and it's now no anything and now in our household when anything does not live up to the hype we call it the red lobster effect because you think you see it on tv and you're like oh my god i want that red lobster crab leg i didn't even really like crab but i'm like that looks so good and then you get to red lobster and it's like this is not what i was promised this is not what i thought was Mm-mm. That is so funny. That's LA is the red lobster effect. Fire <laughs> city. Oh wow. Okay. It's all this like surface beauty. And then mm-hmm. you just scratch. <laughs> and it's like yeah. and it's what? not what you expect. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Before you came. <laughs> I'm still that person that calls my friends and texts my friends. Girls, do you know that um, girlfriends is going to be on blackish? Oh my God, girlfriends is going to be on blackish. We got to be, we all have to watch because girlfriends is going to be on blackish. You don't understand the hype that went around that one episode, okay? There were like 30 of us (laughs) texting each other, watching the episode. Now, and now it's on Netflix. Mm -hmm. I will go down the rabbit hole tonight and watch 30 episodes. (laughs) <laughs> because there's black people and all of a sudden netflix go. is all has a whole section that's all black yes people. yes but yes. i can actually make the decision now to watch something with black people in it yeah whereas before yeah. it was a little harder and yeah, it's funny watching all of the old movies that i used to like like Sabrina. Remember we were talking about this, how I used to watch the, my, Sabrina was my favorite film. And then I watched it the other day and realized there's not one single black person in it. Not one. I noticed that in Malawi, like when I'm teaching the kids and it's all donated, it's a donated library and people donate all their old Jane Eyre's. So I can't tell you're in there and there's nine Jane Eyre's and then a whole bunch of like white people mysteries, which is fine. But really like when you're thinking about elementary school kids and I just remember I was doing a reading group for all the little third graders and we we're sitting and I chose a little engine that could. I thought this is so, because I think about, I think about this is good. It's a picture of a train. You know what I mean? So it isn't about representation. It's an inanimate object. But the thing that's interesting to me is that first I opened up the book, at least three kids said, what's a train? And then I'm like, oh shit. So like I had to stop and explain what a train was because some of the kids hadn't seen a train. There are trains in Malawi, but just in the village, they hadn't been exposed to a train yet. But then as I'm reading the book, I realized it's an older edition, like from the 60s, and the kids are blonde and all the little pictures of the kids in the background, all white, all blonde. And I just was like, this is shameful. Do you know what I mean? In the sense that it's shameful that We need to do more than just get donated books there. Like we need to actually get representational books to this school because this is not helping anyone's self-esteem. This isn't helping anyone's idea of having a dream about doing something and then being able to do it from the third grade. They don't have that. They're reading, you know, they're reading Jane Eyre. And then uh, (laughs) the one or Harry Potter, which is the book everyone reads. Um, but yeah. Harry Potter has a black character. I know. And you know what? I have to say, all over the world, I, Does he? I didn't know that. They won. Won. Is, yeah. is it, is that. I only read the first Harry Potter. Is a black person in the first one? Yes. It's a little oh, okay, black kid in, in the first one. He's in like the first three or four. But with, oh. you know, we're, we're banning Harry Potter because J.K. Rowling is transphobic. 
Yeah. Oh yes, I had heard that. That yes, I heard about yeah, that. Not yes. really truly representational, but I can tell you that the idea of putting a wizard somewhere is what will create peace around the world. Kids <laughs> are just you're like, what do you want to read? I want to read Harry Potter. I was like, okay, all right, let's talk <laughs> about wizards always. But I want to know, like, what what are your thoughts about? Traveling like while black, have you like you've been to Japan? What was that like? Are you do you ever feel other or wish that you had a guide to tell you here in neighborhoods where you might want to be careful because you're not going to feel safe there? No, because like for example, I remember going. I was in Japan. It was not a work trip. It was a birthday trip. I was with five other friends and my husband, um, and I remember what. We're staying in a regular, like a Hilton hotel or something. The only time I remember, I remember some like young Japanese girls coming up to me and saying, and I, I guess I dress in a very cutesy way. And they were like, oh, kawaii, kawaii, which just means cute in Japanese. And they like want, but they didn't know how to say it in English, but they want, they were like asking me if they could touch my locks. And if you ask me, that's fine. No problem. You're curious, whatever. I certainly never experienced anything negative. And I don't, obviously, I think any black person is lying to you if they say that they don't notice if they are the only black person in a particular situation. So I absolutely, I'm always I notice I'm aware if I'm the only black person at a party. I'm aware if my husband always always says to me, it's racist not to like us because he's Asian and I'm black. Everybody has to like us or they just have to pretend they like us because it looks really racist if they don't. But, so I'm aware that, I, that I'm aware that I'm different. I'm aware that I'm the only person there, but I, because of my upbringing, and the place where I was brought up or the places I was brought up, I don't see that as a negative thing. And it's probably a lot to do with my personality. I love being in the spotlight. I just think to myself, oh, so people will notice. Yes, I'm the only Black person here. People will notice. And it's also, I use, use it. I know like I've worked places before where the only Black person are one of very few. And it's always a test to me. Like when someone says they don't remember me, I'm like, yes, you do. I know you remember me. You've noticed me before. There's no way that you have not noticed me. I am four foot 10. I am black. I'm usually dressed in really bright colors and I'm not a shy person. So that to me, someone says, it's like someone at work on the periphery of my work life or whatever. And they say to me, oh, really? Have we met? I don't remember. I always say, mm-hmm, please get a grip. You're not fooling anybody. I know you have noticed me. So I just feel like it, may, it makes me feel special. There are times, you know, everyone's talking now about, obviously, I'm a travel writer who specializes in the Caribbean who hasn't traveled for six months. During I'm, I came home March 10th and I haven't left since, which is the longest time in 10 years that I have been in one place. People are talking about, oh, it's all going to be about domestic travel and RVing and road tripping. And I have to say, as a Black person, I'm thinking, road tripping? I live in the South. Miami is a different country from the rest of the South. And I do live in the South. So if I start to road trip North and I end up in some, you know, even parts of Florida, Northern Florida. And and then I'm like, wow, the South, is that safe for me? Is it safe for me to go road tripping? Like I think to myself, I would never go road tripping by myself as a black woman. I would need a white friend. (laughs) I would need a white friend because I'm also watching, I'm also watching uh, Lovecraft. Oh my God. I was going to bring it up. I'm watching Lovecraft. 
I never knew about these sundown towns. Town, where, yes. And it's a real thing. I actually um, posted about it on my Instagram the other day. Get to know sundown towns because they still exist, but not obviously with the level Officially. of violence that yes. you, you see in Lovecraft Country. And let me tell you, Alex, you need to watch it because it is so up your alley. But in Lovecraft Country, they talk about the Green Book, right? Because the yes. guy, one of the characters is a travel writer for the Green Book. And the Green Book has been reignited. Yes, ma'am. And but I now, know, Yes. Oh, so you know about the Green Book. Yeah, I, I know about the Green Book because I'm a member of the Black Travel Alliance. And so is Marty. She, on Instagram, she's Marty San Diego. Martinique Lewis. We've never met in person, but I've been on many a panel with Marty because, of course, as this whole social change movement has started and continued, we were talking about it in travel because there, there are relatively few Black travel writers. And I didn't even realize that when I came here. And as an older person, what I realize makes I'm getting a bit off track because I'm older, I think, and where and how I grew up, I have never had the expectation that there would be a lot of black people around me. But millennial people, younger, of course, they rightfully want to know why there are no black people on this magazine cover or why there are not that many black contributors, blah, 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 blah. So it's also been a learning process for me. But yes, so I know Marty and she's written this, essentially the modern green book Mm -hmm. for black travelers. And, and I think it's fantastic that she has done it, but I'm, and I'm so proud of her and happy for her that it's being met with such success. But it is also very sad that here in 2020, there's still a market for something like that. Yeah. We're seeing it from the fifties in Lovecraft in sundown towns, but now you still, the idea that you still have to have guides to say to black people, this is where it's safe or this is where, maybe we're not saying this is where it's safe. Maybe we're saying this is where you will feel welcome and yes. comfortable. Right. Still very, it's still very sad. As gay and lesbian trans mm-hmm. travelers, there's always yeah. a section of every book that will say, here's where you will feel welcome. Here's where to avoid. And even with, I travel solo. So like women tro- solo travelers, like here's where, you might feel safe. Here are some rules to go by. And the thing is, what's sad is while I might have those expectations as a visitor into another country that I'm like, okay, that's just, I'm in another mm-hmm. country. To feel that way in your own country. Yeah. That's, it's something that I really feel like it's something we need to address because it is a shame. It's a shame that there has to be a green book in 2020. It shows that we really haven't come any further since Lovecraft that said in the 50s. You know, just just it's in 50 years. Wow. That's really that's that's awful. But the but the truth is that around the world there are places where black people don't feel comfortable, trans people, gay people, people who use a wheelchair are not comfortable on a practical level. Yeah, we the world belongs to all of us, but yet it is enjoyed by so few of us. It is amazing to me. I also, and also another conversation I was having recently is that for me, the term minority is something that's very American. And it's something that I bristle whenever I hear it because non-white people are in the majority, are the majority of the world. And also I feel like there is nothing minor about me. I might be, there might be only a few black people in this 
environment that I'm in, but that doesn't make me any less than a minor minority. It's putting a label on me that I am I am not taking for myself. Someone, white people are giving me that label, but that's not how I identify. It's like the whole BIPOC thing. I don't know if you're familiar with yeah, that. Yeah, like, like that term either. No, but no black person I know even knows how to pronounce that. Mm-hmm. And many black people don't even know what it means. In fact, I was on a webinar a few weeks ago and a black woman was saying, I thought it meant bisexual people of color. <laughs> like, no, no. The only people who use the term BIPOC, and I think that's how you say it, or is it B-I-P-O-C, I don't know, are white people. And there's a, there's a feeling amongst certain black people that it's just a way to get around saying black. And why is everyone so uncomfortable just saying it's a black person? Yeah. Why do we have to be a person of color? So I think part of the reason why, like I went through this phase of asking all my students, how do you identify? Not that I'm ever going to ever call somebody by their race or by anything, mm-hmm. but say I'm teaching a criminal law case and I'm describing, and race is a factor, and I'm describing the races of different people. And, and this was actually in an implicit bias training. And so the idea was, do you use the term African-American or do you use the term black? And the implicit bias instructor said, you have to ask the people what they choose. And I was like, if there are 70 people in a class and I need to describe something, it all of a sudden becomes an educational disconnect. So then for the next six months, I really did just ask like my friends and students that I felt close with. I was like, if I had to ask you what you would prefer, do I describe you if I had to describe you as black or as African-American? And this is what was interesting. It was half and half Mm. where people, and I think people have every right to identify completely as they want to. And I've really accepted the fact that when I was growing up on the East Coast, I identified as Italian American. I didn't think of myself as white or necessarily. I felt very much part of my ethnicity and moving to California. I'm like, no, I'm just a white woman. And in understanding that, but how then, what word do we use? So you're saying, oh, just use black. And I'm like, well, but 20% of the people might be really offended if I use that word. So what you, word do you use? And so it becomes a minefield for somebody who might be woke to just figure out, especially if you're not working in a world where you can say, what do you choose to identify as? And you have to make some generalization that people are looking for something non-offend that won't offend anyone. And then the idea is that it becomes tone deaf, which I totally understand, but I think that's the dilemma. Mm. But for example, I prefer black because I think if you say African-American, you are presuming that every black person is American, African-American, right? And I, yes, I have a, by through marriage, I am now a U.S. citizen. But do I feel American? No, but I for sure feel black. So for me, I feel like, and I don't know, I wasn't here in living in America when the term African-American came up or became popular. But to me, it just seems like, why wouldn't you just say black? And then you can say, yeah, I am black. I'm African-American or yes, I am black and I'm from England or I'm from Italy. And, and I've done it myself. Like I remember seeing some, a black family on the beach in Miami Beach. And I just, I heard them, they were speaking English, but they had a French accent. 
And I presumed, oh, they must be Haitian. But damn, they came from Paris. They were French. And I just had, I just assumed that they must be from the Caribbean and they must be Haitian. But no, they were Parisian. And I thought, "Mm -hmm, Sarah, look, there you go. Talk about implicit bias. You just think, because of course, had they been white people speaking French, I would have assumed that they came from France or some European French speaking country, but they were black. So I thought they came from the Caribbean. So there you go. You can never be sure. Well, see, I am African-American, quote, but I prefer saying that I'm black because Mm. I'm not all African-American. And it's easier, I think, for people to just see me as a black woman. That's the way I think. But I I technically, if you want to do that BIPOC thing, am a person of color because my mother is Puerto Rican. So, But but is your mother a white Puerto Rican? My mother's a white Puerto Rican. Okay, but to me, she could have been a black Puerto Rican too, and you could yes, still true. be Puerto Rican. True, yes. She, her family's from Spain, her direct mm-hmm. heritage. Yeah. It was funny when I got my ancestry, and they, they update this. Don't get me started on that, Lenny. Oh my God, but they updated it every couple of days. Yes, this is like. the pro- Listen, I'm can like- I just talk? Can I just? It, this is crazy. <laughs> and I just, they just didn't update. Yes, I just got mine. Didn't update like in the last week. And now I'm 20% Scottish. So I'm having an issue because the first one I did was like three years ago. And 40% of my heritage was either from Benin or Togo. Benin slash Togo. And they did that because they're two very narrow countries next to each other. They said the very narrow countries, the borders have changed over time. So they're really not quite sure whether you belong to Benin or or Togo. And I spent the weekend but I got the results going down the rabbit hole and I had mm-hmm. worked out, oh, I'm definitely from Benin because <laughs> apparently the Beninois people are all, like their national costume is they apparently they love jackets. They're all into long sleeves and people are perplexed by this because they come from one of the hottest regions in Africa. They're not hot. And I thought these are my people. Because if you see how many Adidas track jackets I have in my closet, and I live in Miami where I have never needed a jacket, and I'm a big jacket girl, I said, oh, no, these are my people. I come by my jacket hoarding. Honestly, I am from Benin. And I spent the next year trying to pitch stories so that I could get to travel to Benin to write about it. And I wondered, will will it feel familiar to me? Will the people look for the whole bit? And then I get an update from, from, and they're like, no, you're not mostly from Benin. Now I'm from Nigeria. I felt like, you know, I really had, was invested in my Beninois heritage. I felt really gypped. And then now I get the latest one. And Scottish was always there, even a little bit like 2% Norway. My mother is very light-skinned. Her father, to all intents and purposes, looked white. So I wasn't surprised that there was a lot of English Mm-hmm. Scottish and Welsh in there. But now I'm 20% Scottish. So you're telling me I have a tartan now, right? Because <laughs> it's crazy. Tartan? Do you love plaid? Do you not? <laughs> no, actually, I'm not a fan of, I'm not a fan of plaid. I feel like someone gave me a good tip and she said, Sarah, you need to go to those, ant- this is completely off topic, but just for you, Lenny, I'm going to tell you. Africanancestry.com. Yes. where you need to go because they have the largest sample of black DNA and apparently they can tell you down to your tribe in Africa where you can. Oh, I'm doing that then. The difference but, is, whereas you, Ancestry is like $59 or $99, this is $300. But that's I think fine. it's worth it. It'll be worth to it. know where you really came from? Yeah. Real? 
Did but you, I think Sarah? part of it though is I I'm am yet, a I'm large, I am a large percentage white because of my mother. I think I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I first did this ancestry thing, I was a little bit shocked on how white I actually was. It was something mm-hmm. like a, it was ridiculous. It was like a 60, 40 split. And I, I was like 60% African, 40% of white heritage from like Spain, Portugal, mm-hmm. England, and I was like, but it oh, makes wow. sense though. And Ireland, that's, and I, and I, but it bothered me. I'm not going to lie. It bothered really? me. Now it's, now they seem to have a, a more Puerto Rican samples. So they're able to say that the major, like I'm 20% indigenous from Puerto Rico, which would be my grandmother for sure. And then there's more like Spain and, and Portugal which would be my my mother. But my father, being African-American from the South, had 17% Irish blood. Because but even yeah. if he was from the South, it's not where his... He came from somewhere here. Yeah, but also... America, right? Yes, but also in the plantation, because we, we fortunately know in Darien, Georgia, there was not that many um, plantations. We We know where we're from, but like apparently there was an Irish overseer had many children. Yes, um, of course. So, yeah, so that makes sense to me. But it then just, again, tips me over. So now I'm almost at a 50-50 split. And at some point, if this keeps up, I'm losing my blackness. <laughs> and you <laughs> might, by 2023, you might be 90% white. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, this is not happening. This is you might happening. be 90% white. <laughs> Never really. <laughs> and this isn't happening. It's not happening. Oh, if it ever gosh. gets to that, I just won't publicize. I, just I don't think you need to worry because the world will always see you as black lady. That's right. So I will you always you know, be you black can, I, You can tell people you are white till the cows come home and they'll be like, yeah, I know. Exactly. So that, I shouldn't worry. That's why I can tell you guys. But yes. it was it's a safe space. When I saw it, when I got the update the other day, I put down the phone and I was like, Shane, this is just getting out of hand. This is getting out of hand. And every single time I'm getting less and less black. <laughs> <laughs> it's just because I did the initial ancestry when I was living in Australia. Cause I mean, I just want, like I had this whole thing of not knowing who I was and living in this all white country. And I just felt like this need to figure this out. And I tell you, it, it was just such a hard time living in Australia as a black person, as a black American person, because they have a huge African community and I, they lovingly embraced me, thank goodness, because I don't know, I think I would have been very lost, especially because Australia is not, it's, it was never a, um, racist like it is here. Like you were saying, it's like an English thing. It was like a covert, undercover, masked by curiosity type of thing. Mm-hmm. But once you become hip to it, it, it just, it gets to you. It gets under your skin. And it was getting under my skin. I was like, 14 years is a long time to live like that as well. And where in Australia were you then? Sydney. It's, okay. So I, we, we, and we probably discussed this when we, you were here in Miami, but I went to Sydney twice. And I remember the first time being so shocked. You think Sydney, big international city, multi. It, and I saw three black people. And yeah. I was like, wait a minute. What? First of all, I was like, don't tell me there's no Jamaican restaurant here. There's got to be somewhere where there's Caribbean food because Jamaicans are everywhere. And people insisted to me. And apparently it's true. They're like, no, there's nothing here. And then I thought about on that trip, we started by, we flew in and we went to Uluru first. What was used used to be called um, Ayers Rock. 
And I remember when I was in Sydney, where obviously we saw Aboriginal Indigenous people. And I remember in Sydney, I was like, where are the Indigenous Aboriginal people here? Because they're not here either. Where, where are they? And someone was explaining to me and they said, before you come with your high-handed American attitude and to want to, where, you know, where are the Indigenous people and why are they here? Where are your Native American people? Do you see them in your cities? I'm like, you're right. You're tr- it's true. Yeah. It's just, and, but yes, Australia, particularly when I was at college in England, Australia had the, or has probably still, or at least had the reputation be- for being somewhere that was laid back and welcoming to all and chill and relax. And I never for a second thought that Australia was a racist country until I spoke to people who had lived there, a Jamaican friend who lived there, actually a white Jamaican friend. And then when I saw for myself, they're just, it's not, I learned about the fact that their immigration policies until the 70s were such that they only wanted a particular type of immigrants. They wanted white people to come, but they weren't rolling out the uh, wagon for, you know, black people to come there. No, if you came from Asia or if you came from Europe, they're all excited to have you. So Not even from Asia. Oh, really? Yeah, not even from Asia. Yeah, so that was that's a whole other uh, story. What advice do you have for Black travelers out there? Out there, don't let anybody stop you. Don't We are a traveling people. Whether it was that we traveled of our own volition or not, <laughs> we are a traveling people, and you have to believe that the world is yours. Because if you stay in your corner, no one is coming to draw you out of it. You have to get out there and claim the world and recognize that, yeah, like I feel like you come from a traveling people. You have to have a healthy sense of entitlement to the entire world, not just the places where Black people traditionally go or traditionally come from. The whole, whole big, beautiful world. And when people start seeing you in those places, They might not like it in the beginning, but eventually they accept you and eventually you are welcomed. Unfortunately, this is taking a a really long process and I may not even see it in my lifetime, but that does not mean that people shouldn't put themselves out there. The world is yours. Claim it. And then what, one one other question. So besides Jamaica, Mm. what other island would you recommend Oh, I have four. This is easy. Oh, all right. All right. People ask me this question all the time. So if we're talking about the Caribbean, I will say I have four favorite islands. Of course, Jamaica, because I lived half my life. There's nowhere else like it. Jamaica is a total package. It has the food, music, culture, blah, 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 blah. Beaches, mountains, everything. Now, I also love Anguilla. Anguilla is very tiny. It's only 33 square miles, 30, 35 square miles Unfortunately, or fortunately, (laughs) you can't fly direct from the United States. You have to fly into St. Martin and then you either take the ferry 30 minutes, which is lovely, or an eight minute flight, which you can't even fill in the immigration form before you touch down in Anguilla. But Anguilla is fantastic and it's a gem. It's got, if you're a beach lover, it's a perfect place to be because it has 33 amazing beaches. And I don't mean, yeah, 33, you're stretching it. There are gorgeous beaches that on any given day you may have all to yourself. Wow. Anguilla is very close to St. Bart's, and I like to say that they are like two equally wealthy sisters, except that St. Bart's is the snooty, uppity one, and Anguilla is the barefoot, boho, casual one who has the same amount of money, but it's just really chill. And it's true. You can go anywhere in uh, 
any restaurant, any beach bar in um, Anguilla and the person sitting next to you with just a t-shirt on and barefoot could be a billionaire. And, and nobody bats an eye. It's very chill. I love that. So Anguilla, I love. And then my other two favorites are, I love the Turks and Caicos Islands. I love all the archipelagos actually. So the Grenadines, the Bahamas, which is, people don't know, it's 700 different islands. Um, the Bahamas, the Grenadines, and Turks and Caicos, I love. I just love the idea of island hopping. So you could have a vacation from your vacation. You can do that very easily in the Turks and Caicos. You fly into Provo, which is the main tourist island. But you can take the ferry to go over to North and Middle Caicos for the day. And it's just a completely different experience. The islands don't even look the same. Provo is a coral island that's flat and doesn't really have much vegetation other than scrub. And then you go to North and Middle and it's like the Garden of Eden. So I love that. And then my new favorite, my newest favorite is Bekwe. Bekwe is a tiny island, 16 square miles, I think, in the Grenadines, in St. Vincent and the Grenadines. And it is, okay, we were talking about James Bond earlier. In the early Dr. No, like in the 60s, James Bond, where people are walking, there's, it's like a Caribbean main street right on the water and women have their little straw baskets and it's all, it's like that. It's, it's old Caribbean like that. It's, it's just untouched. It's largely undiscovered. It's beautiful. It's safe. It feels remote, but not isolated. I love it. Beckway. That's my new miss favorite. That's so there you go. Four. There. Okay. So yes. two more questions. Two more questions. Yes. So one besides jerk chicken, Mm. favorite dish Aha, i'm gonna give you i'm gonna give you i jamaican kfc people what is the hurry jamaican <laughs> kfc i've even mm. written about it go to jets at sarah.com I, I have seen that but yes no seriously there's something about i'm not tempted by kfc here and i have do i'm doing a very unscientific test of kfc's throughout the caribbean jamaica <laughs> is number one. And we don't know why, but I did, but I have some, th- some theories and I have spoken to the franchise holder for um, someone who works for the franchise holder in Jamaica. And I think it's a combination of the fact that it's local chickens. So they're not like huge battery hens, local chickens um, in Jamaica. <laughs> when KFC opens the way they have the AC ducting done, all the chicken smell comes straight out. So in Jamaica is the only place I know where in the morning there's a line outside KFC. There's a particular KFC and Montego Bay has four or five KFCs. It's ridiculous. But there's a particular KFC and I knew the manager of that one and that per capita, she would tell me that when she would go to the annual KFC managers conference, she was a star because that KFC in Montego Bay, Jamaica sells more KFC per capita than anywhere else in the world. Trust me, it's so good. It's it's also one of the few places where you can get barbecue KFC. And let's get real. There's the F, it's still fried. It's not like it's out on the grill. But what they do is they fry the chicken in the batter. And Oh, I'm coming. Oh, the batter is very important. I forgot that. They fry the chicken in the batter and then they roll it in a sweet sauce. So it's like a heart attack, but you're going to die happy. Oh my God. But yes, but the... (laughs) But the real reason why, and KFC Jamaica will neither confirm nor deny this, but I've been told that the reason why is because in the 70s, why it tastes so good is in the 70s, the franchise holders noticed when they got the franchise, they noticed Jamaicans weren't 
so into it. And they asked head office for permission to tweak the colonel's secret 1123, how many herbs and the secret formula. And our apparently Jamaican KFC has more salt in the matter than anywhere else. So the combination of the salt and the local chickens is what, seriously, when you go to Jamaica, you must have jerk chicken. You must have ting, which is a Jamaican grapefruit soda. Oh, you must ting. have, right? You must have a, a beef patty, of course. And yep. you're either, there are two major con- um, patty companies. There's a tasty, T-A-S-T-E-E, and there's juicy, J-U-I-C-I. So you're either team tasty or team juicy. I am team tasty. It's one of, tasty started the same year I was born, 1966. And it's one of the few things in Jamaica that is has remained consistent throughout the years. We do a lot of things well in Jamaica consistency is not one of them but the tasty patty tastes exactly the same way today as it did when i was four years old juicy are the they're the upstarts they started in the 80s so for me it's juicy the truth be told if you offer me a juicy patty right now i would scarf it down it's still a good patty but i'm team tasty but kfc i'm not joking no don't jamaica and you you watch you ask for original Thai, which is an original formula <laughs> Thai. That is my control that I use throughout the Caribbean to test the KFC. You have like a I go to what spreadsheet. Yes. Well I don't the spreadsheet is, is in my head. head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I've had it everywhere. I've had it in Nassau. I've had it in Guadeloupe. I've had it in St. Martin. Yeah. An, an original thigh is the control. So there you go. Trust me, anyone who is listening to this, when you go to Jamaica, and no one will be feel no shame to ask for someone to drop you off at the KFC. No one will be surprised. In fact, they will know that you are in the know because that Jamaican KFC is the best. Trinidad is a close second. I'll give them that. I love it. So I don't know if you heard our first episode, but we talked, we ended up talking a little bit about cultural appropriation. And we talked a little bit about the white people who come to the islands and get braids. No. No, No. I love this. Okay. For example, if I just don't think it's a good look, personally, (laughs) I don't think, I don't think it's a good look. It's just, it's, we have a Jamaican expression. (laughs) We have a Jamaican expression, never see, come see. You're a never see, come see, which means that, (laughs) I don't know, maybe it's not appropriate here, but if someone is, if someone is in this particular, no, I don't mean in this forum, I feel very comfortable here, but. If, if someone accuses you of being a never see come see, it is like you are an arrivist. You are someone who is not used to something, but you have like it's a bit nouveau. Like you are not used to it, but you are acting like you were. Like it just, I don't know, it just seems wrong. And I understand white people, for all the white people listening, I understand why how white people would say, hold on, you don't want me to wear braids, but you want your right to straighten your hair or to wear a weave or to wear a straight wig. I know it's not fair, but life is not fair. <laughs> but, 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 no, but wait a minute. No, we wear weaves and we straighten our hair, not because we want to, but because that's the standard of beauty that's imposed mm. upon us. Oh, Absolutely. Oh. That's where you get into oppression. Right. Yes. I mean, like we're, we would be in a completely different conversation without, if we didn't have the history of oppression, because Lenya actually had a, had a wonderful way to think about it is that 
if a white person comes to Jamaica, thinks it's really cool, to, she sees all the braids, she gets her hair braided, and then she comes back to the States and she gets to be the cool girl and everybody thinks, oh, wow, you're so cool. And the thing is, like, Lenya, like, wears braids and somebody says, you know what, that's not appropriate for the workplace. Yeah, exactly. That's, Lenya, you're that's right. That's the exact difference. Yes, yes. Uh, if the day that I can wear my hair in dreadlocks or or braids or a big fro and no one is thinking mm, that's not appropriate that's not professional that's not the image we want to project but when you do it's like oh it's really cool like oh it's, it's revolutionary yeah yeah no don't do that don't do that i know that there are people who for whom that's their livelihood braiding unsuspecting tourist hair but I just feel like, no, don't do it. Don't do that. And please, and I've written about this before, don't come to Jamaica and buy yourself a woodland tam with the fake dreadlocks attached. Oh, okay. that's yeah. that, that actually that's a worse, that is a worse than the braiding. Cause it feels like if you wear it's black facey. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. Don't do, don't do that. Just don't do it. Or isn't it funny how I like, so we corn we in Jamaica we call it cane rows or corn rows of your hair, and I have a, my very best friend is a white woman, and we're talking about it, and she says to me, Sarah, can you tell me I want to get some Dutch braids, and I'm like, what are Dutch braids? And apparently Dutch braids are corn rows, but corn rows for white people. Like yeah. look it up. There's I'm not like seventeen corn rows or cane rows in two. the fields, but just the two, like the and milk made braids. That's another yeah. way of talking. Oh wow, just give it a different name and charge three times as much to do it. I was like, wow, crazy, crazy. Wow, that's. No, but I'm glad you weighed in on that because I want to keep giving, I want to yeah. keep giving that airtime because I do think that is a sticking point where white people are like, but I don't understand it's appreciation. And I think that we need to it's, do Yeah, no. But if the people you're supposed to be appreciating tell you they don't feel appreciated by you doing it, then you should not. Exactly. Then just don't. Then <laughs> just don't. And I don't know any black person who's going to say, yes, white people, please get your hair braided. That makes me feel validated. No, it doesn't. It just makes me think, oh my God. Look at it makes me feel like I can't have anything. <laughs> like, I can't have anything. Yeah. yeah. Well, no. I mean, like, I got people wanting to steal my afro. Oh, I wish my hair would do that. No, you don't. Yeah. <laughs> no, you yeah, don't. That, that is a most disingenuous comment. And I don't know if it has ever been said with genuine yeah. intent and feeling behind it. I have had so many white people come up to me and say, oh my God, I wish I could dread my hair. No, you don't. And you don't need to feel that you need to make me feel comfortable about my hair by saying that. Because I think that's why you're saying it. I think. Because you, no, I, don't I don't know. know. I don't know. Like, why? Like, All right, tell me why. The thing is that, again, like going back to my childhood, I was mm -hmm. the only white girl in my childhood. And I've told Lenya this story, but like I would come home from school and I would be like, Vicky had her hair like in, like with the big, it's 70s, with the big ponytail holders, with the big bubble gum, like. Oh, the bubbles. Bubble. Yeah. She would have the bubbles all over her hair. And I would tell my mom, I want to look like Vicky. And my mom would try to do it. And all my hair would just lay flat with these bubble things. And I would, and I looked ridiculous. And my mother was like, you, you're but not you were a child, but you were oh, a child. Yeah. Yes, it's true. But I have to say the imprint is there. So mm -hmm. I absolutely ascribe beauty as like, um, having, and also I grew up in the eighties. 
So I also like big hair. And so when I see like big hair, whether it's Mariah Carey, big hair or Erica Badu, big hair, I was like, I want big hair. And so I don't think it has anything to do with race. Now I'm well aware that it's felt that way. So I never say anything. Do you know what I mean? Because part of it is learning how to pause. This is a sensitive topic because it has been used as a weapon and it has been used as a microaggression. So I don't say anything because I think that's important to show growth and to say we're not there. But I got to say, I really... I, you want some braids? Are you going to confess now braids. that you want I some want, braids? I want he wants an afro. I don't really want braids. Oh. He wants uh, a want afro. curly... I you could get like... A big perm or maybe just a wig? I don't know. No, I tried a big perm once. That didn't work out. No. Well. It's all right. I've made peace. I love my hair, but I'm just You've saying. Got good hair. But I'm just <laughs> saying. I don't think it always comes from any kind of bad place except tone deafness and cluelessness to where we are in time, where just even having the conversation of understanding the context of things and understanding where we are. And so I do think it's important that I'm not going to, I'm going to tell Lenya because I know Lenya has been growing out her hair for a while to, to get that haircut. Like I was like, Lenya, I love your hair because that's where we are. What? Yeah. I said, you knew this time last year I was bald. So I love your hair, Lenya. Thank you. I am not bald anymore. No, (laughs) No, it looks beautiful and it looks great. And so the idea is like, that's different. Um, or I was having drinks with a friend also black. And she had grown her hair. The last time I'd seen her, her hair was short and she had grown her hair long. And I'm like, oh my God, you grew your hair. It looks so good. It's not about, that's just about friendship. But going up to a stranger and saying, hi, I love your braids. Or even just meeting somebody and saying, hi, I love your braids. Like it does, you're right. There's a phoniness to it. A phony is the right word. And I think it's also a very individual thing. I think as a black person, when someone is coming to you genuinely and saying, because if someone can come up to me, a white person can come up to me and say, oh my gosh, I love your hairstyle or I love your locks or whatever. And I say, thank you. That's fine. But then when, but there are other times when someone will come up to me and say things like, oh, I wish I could dread my hair like that or blah, 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 blah. And it just feels disingenuous. And, and, And so it's, it's probably a very individual thing. I understand because it's also maybe it's a lack of understanding of the history that goes behind it. So again, it's that same thing. The white girl comes home with the braids and everybody thinks it's trendy, but the person has no concept of why the person is wearing the braids, what the hardships are like around that and like going to work, how it's not allowed in certain workplaces or how it how sort of yeah, and and how for as a black woman your hair has to be political it just can't yes, be like absolutely. i want to wear my hair straight today or i want to wear a wig today or i want to wear a weave today like why can't we just have hair as an accessory why does it have to mean something right yeah absolutely, absolutely. and it's the cluelessness around that but that's mm-hmm. that takes us back to travel so that's what also takes <laughs> us back to traveling because if we traveled more i think there would be less of this I hope so. I hope so. If we, if we travel with our eyes open and, and ready to appreciate different things, I, yeah, I hope that will lead to more, not tolerance, because nobody just wants to be tolerated. People want to be loved, welcomed, and accepted. Hopefully travel would lead to, more travel leads to, hopefully will lead to all of that. 
Need advice? Have a question? Find us at womenbridgingthegap.com. We're happy to address your problems in our podcast, anonymously, of course. Spread the word by rating and reviewing wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, tune in for our next segment on race and everyday things, where we will discuss race and the tarot.